Thank you, uh, Professor Kumar Swami. Um, welcome, Professor Schindler. Uh, uh, you know all the other uh, participants uh, for this uh, special lecture that is uh, jointly being organized by the Human Rights Studies Program of Jawaharlal University and the Middle East Institute of New Delhi um, on the occasion of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, we will have uh, Professor Schindler uh, speak uh, for about 30, 30 to 35 minutes, 40 minutes um, um, on uh, the Holocaust. Uh, the title is, uh, title is talk, Murder on an Industrial Scale, the Killing of Six Million Jews. Uh, now, Professor Schindler is an emeritus professor at the uh, at the SOAS uh, uh, School of Oriental and um, African Studies, uh, University of London. Uh, he has been, uh, you know, he's a prominent scholar on uh, on Israel. He's written about close to a dozen books on Israel, uh, either mostly single-authored and some uh, edited. Um, and so he's, you know, he's uh, eminently qualified person to speak on uh, today's uh, topic uh, on the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, and we are lucky to have him. Once again, I would also extend, along with Professor Kumar Sam, I would also extend uh, my gratitude to Professor Schindler for, uh, you know, joining us this early in the day in London, um, uh, you know, considering the nature of the occasion. Um, uh, you know, so we are very grateful to you, sir, for uh, joining us. Uh, and uh, let me hand over uh, the uh, proceedings to him. He, he will give a lecture for about, I suppose, about 35, 40 minutes, sir. Or, or yes, that'll be fine. Yes. Or how long will be? Yeah. Yes, sure, sure. Great. And, and we'll have a discussion following that. And uh, then, uh, you know, uh, we will wrap up after that. So let me hand over to Professor Schindler. Uh, Professor Schindler, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm really delighted to be here, even if it is some uh, unearthly hour here in, in London, but I'm very pleased to uh, be able to talk to you. I want to start with a quote. The quote goes as follows. The German persecution of the Jews seems to have no parallel in history. The tyrants of old never went so mad as Hitler seems to have gone. And he is doing it with religious zeal for he is propounding a new religion of exclusive and militant nationalism in the name of which any inhumanity becomes an act of humanity to be rewarded here and hereafter. Now, the author of these words was Mahatma Gandhi, writing just a few hours after a nationwide pogrom against the Jews in Nazi Germany, known as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Gandhi was shocked at what had happened on the night of the 9th and 10th of November, 1938. 200 synagogues were burned to the ground. Thousands of Jewish shops and homes ransacked. 30,000 sent to camps at Buchenwald, Dachau and Sachsenhausen. A hundred Jews were killed. Now during Kristallnacht, Jews were trampled to death and thrown out of windows. Old age homes and orphanages were attacked and emptied in the smallest of villages. Ordinary people from all walks of life turned on their Jewish neighbors. Teachers led their pupils from the classroom 
to the synagogue and encouraged them to tear Torah scrolls and to play football with prayer books. The banker, Emil Kramer, took his own life. One of several Jews who committed suicide on Kristallnacht rather than face the mob. Jewish cemeteries were desecrated in Hanover and Vienna. At Bad Sodden near Frankfurt, a Jewish hospital was closed down and the patients left to fend for themselves. In Kapath near Potsdam, a hundred children were thrown out of a children's home. Many of them were orphans uh, who were forced to walk the streets and to find a Jewish home willing to take them in. This was the story of Kristallnacht. Many believed that they were doing the right thing, expunging the Jewish virus from the German body. I repeat what Gandhi wrote, any act of, any act of humanity became an act of uh, inhumanity to be rewarded here and hereafter. Yet not all, all Germans approved of the pogrom. Der Schwarzer Korps, the organ of the SS, was particularly annoyed at such quiet uh, disapproval by some German citizens. It described them as a rabble worse than the Jews. The reaction of the Western powers was one of deep anger and profound outrage. US President Roosevelt said, I could scarcely believe that such things could happen in a 20th century civilization, while former President Hoover accused the Nazis of taking Ger Germany back 450 years to Torquemada's expulsion of the Jews from Spain. Editorials in the American press were scathing, while Mayor LaGuardia of New York instructed that the police squad deputed to guard a visiting Nazi delegation should now consist only of Jews. In the British Parliament and press, there were similar expressions of outrage. The events of Kristallnacht, events which so shocked Gandhi, were a harbinger of what was to come during World War II when Nazi Germany occupied a defeated Europe. From the waters of the English Channel at Dunkirk to the snows outside Moscow, Jews were the targets of a mass murder simply because they were Jews and for no other reason. Indian forces fought courageously in World War II to defeat Nazism. The Indian army fought in Ethiopia, Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, and Algeria. It fought against the Japanese when they threatened to, to invade India. And Field Marshal Okunlech said that if it hadn't been for the Indian army, Britain would not have survived not only World War I, but also World War II. Now, 87,000 Indian servicemen paid with their lives to defend not only India, but the world against Nazi servitude and Japanese imperialism. When victory came in 1945, the peoples of India rejoiced. For the Jews, it was a different story. In 1939, they had no country and no armed forces. Dispersed across the world, they numbered 16 to 17 million people. By the end of the war, 
six million had been murdered by the Nazis, more than a third of the entire Jewish people. The Allies may have won the war, but the Jews certainly lost it. Germany had been defeated in World War I in November 1918. It had suddenly collapsed in the autumn of that year when they had a few months earlier made a breakthrough and seemingly appeared on the brink of victory. The collapse had been mainly due to the incompetence of the generals, the technical advance of the British in inventing the tank and the arrival of American troops. It was also due to the war weariness and the extreme hunger of the German people. The German monarchy fell, the Kaiser went into exile in Holland, and a republic, the Weimar Republic, declared, uh, was declared and, and the Allies imposed the Versailles Treaty. Victorious Allies stripped Germany of its many colonies and imposed harsh, harsh reparations on it. During the 1920s, Germany was in economic freefall and this became much worse with the onset of the Great Depression. Germans felt humiliated and a great resentment grew. Once Germany had been a great empire and now it had been reduced to an economic basket case. Many felt that Germany had suffered, quote, a stab in the back in 1918. If they had only kept going, German nationalists argued, they would have been victorious in World War I. All this played into the hands of militant groups which had emerged in the early 1920s, including the National Socialists of Adolf Hitler, a corporal in World War I. A scapegoat had to be found by these far-right groups, a scapegoat responsible for all of Germany's ills. Hitler and others blamed the Jews for its defeat in World War I, even though Tens of thousands of German Jews had fought and died for Germany. Why were the Jews hated by these embryonic fascists? Essentially because the Jews were different and it was difficult to cope with the other. Both Jesus Christ and Karl Marx were Jews, but the Jews did not fit into neither Christian doctrine nor Marxist theory. In a very important article entitled The Future of Our People, this was written in 1883 by a man called Moses Lillianbloom, he, he delineated the hopelessness of the Jewish predicament. He wrote this, the opponents of nationalism see us as uncompromising nationalists with a nationalist God and a nationalist Torah. The nationalists see us as cosmopolitans, whose homeland is wherever we happen to be well off. Religious Gentiles say that we are devoid of any faith. And the free thinkers among them say that we are orthodox and believe in all kinds of nonsense. The liberals say we are conservative and the conservatives call us liberal. <laughs> Some bureaucrats and writers see us as the root of anarchy, insurrection and revolt. And the anarchists say we are capitalists, the bearers of the biblical civilization which in their view, based on slavery and parasitism. Officialdom accuses us of circumventing 
the, la the laws of the land. That is, of course, the laws directed specifically against us. Musicians like Richard Wagner charge us with destroying the beauty and purity of music. Even our merits are turned into shortcomings. Few Jews are murderers, they say, because Jews are cowards. This, however, does not prevent them from accusing us of murdering Christian children. This was, uh, this was written, as I say, nearly 140 years ago. Now, Hitler whipped up anti-Semitic feeling in Germany in the 1920s. And he came to power uh, in early uh, 1933 as chancellor. And within weeks, the first concentration camp, Dachau, had been opened to contain political opponents. A one-day boycott of Jewish shops and businesses took place on the 1st of April. Stars of David were painted on shop windows and on doorways. In September 1935, the Nuremberg laws were enacted. This forbade marriage between German non-Jews and German Jews. It also stripped Jews of citizen rights. By 1939, 44% of German Jews had left the country. There was even a plan to resettle the rest of the Jewish population in Madagascar. Many German conservatives simply looked the other way and went along with Hitler's mad ideas. Many supported the enabling law of March 1933, which effectively gave Hitler full dictatorial powers. They thought that they could control Hitler. They couldn't. They thought that Hitler was a passing phenomenon. He wasn't. They believed that Hitler's brinkmanship in retrieving the territories lost in World War I would never lead to war, but it did. The historian Michael Burley, Burley in his book, Sacred Causes, encapsulated why Hitler came to power and why he appealed to many Germans in times of adversity. Burley wrote as follows. Hitler came from a humble backwater on the peripheries of an empire. The Great War was the authentic experience that emotionally connected the listless drifter with millions of ordinary Germans, who like him had also returned to the chaos and political strife of the Weimar Republic. It was a two-way process, like people trying to touch each other in a dark room. Hitler's early supporters had, quote, found their way to him. Their faith given their lives, quote, new meaning and a new goal, or something akin to the transforming experience of a religious conversion. Now, on the 1st of September, as is well known, Hitler invaded Poland. Two days later, Great Britain and France declared war on Nazi Germany. Over 3 million Jews, some 10% of the population, lived in Poland in the 1930s. <clears throat> now, some 2 million Polish Jews were under German occupation. Within weeks of the invasion of Poland, its Jews were herded into ghettos where living conditions were exceedingly primitive, disease was rife, and food was scarce. By 1943, almost 300 ghettos had been established to imprison hundreds of thousands of Jews. Moreover, Germany's Hitler 
and the Soviet Union Stalin had signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in the days before the invasion of Poland in 1939. This was a non-aggression agreement in which both countries agreed to divide Poland between them. Two weeks after Nazi Germany had invaded from the West, the Soviet Union invaded from the East. Poland had ceased to exist as a sovereign state. Between then and the spring of 1940, the so-called phony war prevailed. In April 1940, Norway, Denmark, Yugoslavia, and Greece were invaded. This was followed by the, by the conquest of Belgium and Holland, where Anne Frank, a Jewish girl, hid in a house in Amsterdam and wrote her diary. <clears throat> in the summer of 1940, France fell and Britain stood alone and dependent on countries such as India, Canada, and Australia. The United States remained neutral. <clears throat> One year later, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941 in Operation Barbarossa. As the German armies advanced, the Einsatzgruppen killing squads sought out elements to murder. These included communists, the Roma, gypsies, <coughs> excuse me, and Jews. <coughs> they were often helped by nationalist co collaborators in the Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, and other countries that they conquered. At the end of September 1941, the Germans murdered over 30,000 Jews at Babi Yar, a ravine just outside Kiev in the Ukraine. The killing machine processed its victims by lining them up naked alongside a ditch they had just dug. Murdering the, this first line of victims, a second group of victims would line up at the end of the ditch. They would be murdered and fall on top of a cushion of corpses. The German executioners referred to it as sardine packing. Within weeks, the Nazi killing machine had begun to murder women and children. No one was spared. Babi Yar was symptomatic of a radical, of a gradual radicalization of Nazi extermination practice. In January 1942, 15 leading Nazis gathered at a villa in the Berlin suburb of Wannsee and planned, quote, a final solution to the Jewish problem. In ambiguous language, it stated that they would be, they were to be transported to the East. At the same time, the Nazis went beyond using mere concentration camps to contain Jews. Initially, they used to gas Jews using the exhaust fumes of vans. Then they started to expand these camps and to build extermination camps as annexes. Gas chambers were, were installed at Auschwitz, Belzec, Medianek, Sobibor, and Treblinka. Jews were brought in in sealed cattle trucks from all parts of Europe. There was a selection whereby a chosen few were selected to become slave labor. The rest were told to take off their clothes and herded into what they were told were showers. In the chambers, 
pellets of hydrogen cyanide, Zyklon B, were added, and the incarcerated Jews uh, died slowly. The mass murder of men, women, and children on an industrial scale took the lives of millions of innocents simply because they were Jews. Jewish prisoners were forced to drag out the uh, corpses and to collect any valuables such as gold teeth and rings. They cut women's hair and <clears throat> took any jewelry and then transferred all the bodies to the incinerators where their bodies would be turned into ash and smoke. <clears throat> By the second half of 1942, the news of this mass extermination of Jews reached London. Even as it became clear that the Germans were losing the war, the extermination of Jews continued apace and even accelerated in 1944. The first extermination camp to be liberated was Majinek by the Soviets in July 1944. As the Third Reich <coughs> shrank in size with the Soviet armies coming from the east and the British and Americans from the west, there were forced marches of prisoners. In November 1944, <coughs> there were death marches from Budapest to the, to the Reich's border at Hegye Yishalom. Thousands of Jews, glad in light clothing and without provisions, trudged in the biting wind and rain in the full bitterness of a Hungarian winter towards the border. Men, women and children, old and young, the able and disabled, were now needed to provide the slave labor required to sustain the disintegrating Reich. Trains were required for other purposes and thousands died where they fell. The Swedish diplomat, Raoul Wallenberg, reacted to this, station, this situation by racing with his Hungarian helpers to Hegye Shalom to rescue those Jews at the border who had survived the march. Those who possessed the Schutzpass, the Swedish protective passport, bearing the insignia of the three crowns. In cooperation with the Red Cross, Wallenberg was able to deliver five truck roads of food and medicine. And through bluff and bravado, a disdain for the Nazis and the local Arrow Cross fascists, Wallenberg was able to save hundreds of people. As history records, his life, his, his reward was a short life and an uncertain death in one of Stalin's execution chambers. Many Germans remained diehard Nazis at the end and believed that Hitler would reverse German fortunes. Others blurred patriotism for the fatherland with loyalty to the Nazi state. Many feared the advance of the Red Army of the Russians and the revenge that the Soviets would reap. Yet this was not a normal war between sides, one the victor, the other defeated. Nazi Germany was a genocidal state. Its task was to murder all the Jews in the world. 
it did not succeed. In April 1945, British and American troops entered death camps such as Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, Mauthausen, Dachau, and found the remnants of the forced marches, the dead and the dying, the emaciated and the corpses. They were horrified at such bestiality. The first film footage reached London cinemas in April and May 1945. Word passed from mouth to mouth. Huge queues formed, circling the cinema block several times. This was the first imagery of the Holocaust. In Hebrew, the Shoah, which means destruction. And audiences came out of these cinemas stunned. They were unable to contemplate the imaginable, what the Nazis had wreaked upon the Jews and upon humanity itself. So, in 2021, it is self-evident why we meet here today, albeit, for me, virtually around a computer. Myself in London and you in Delhi and other places, other locations in India, the universal lesson from history is that no one should be a bystander. I would like to finish with, with the words of the Italian Jewish writer, Primo Levi. He wrote this, he'd been in a camp himself, he'd survived. He wrote this in 1946. Consider that this has been, I commend these words to you. Engrave them on your hearts when you are in your house, when you walk on your way, when you go to bed, when you rise. Repeat them to your children, or may your house crumble. Disease render you powerless. Your offspring avert their faces from you. This is the lesson of the Holocaust so many years ago. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Schindler. Um, doesn't matter how many times we read about it or we hear about it, uh, if the capacity to shock uh, is still, uh, I think, very present. Uh, each time uh, we go over this horrible, uh, what happened uh, or the history of the Holocaust. Um, I have, I mean, I, this is especially as you, as you summed up uh, the end, this is especially, uh, you know, the lessons are particularly relevant considering the fact that we are now uh, once again um, facing <coughs> in different parts of the world um, examples of rising hatred, of communal violence, uh, even of concentration camps. Uh, once again reappearing. Um, so, I mean, it is, if it was uh, a horror, uh, it was unimaginable in the 20th century, uh, in the early 20th century, it is even more unimaginable in the early 21st century, but uh, nevertheless, here we are. Um, so let me, um, let me sort of, uh, I had, uh, I had several questions, but let me sort of 
ask one uh, and then I'll open it up for others, uh, other comments and questions and whatnot. And those of you who would like to ask a, com a question or make a comment, you can either raise your hand or else you can put it in the chat box and then I can sort of read it out to Professor Schindler. <clears throat> uh, so my sort of question um, broadly to sort of begin with uh, is, there is a bit of a controversy about, not a bit, but fairly serious controversy about what other Western countries, Western powers, great powers could have done um, uh, about halting um, uh, what was happening inside Germany, <coughs> even after the war started, um, and about maybe bombing some of the places which supplied the chemicals for these horror uh, camps uh, or even attacking those camps and so on and so forth. I mean, the military feasibility of these things being open to question, but nevertheless, uh, what do you think um, other countries could have done, other Western powers could have done uh, in, you know, in helping uh, uh, in that situation? And what can, as we see today, these uh, not this not of the same scale or of the same uh, same um, uh, you know same events, but the leading up uh, the crystal knots being repeated or uh, you know parallels to the crystal knot uh, coming up. What should other countries do? What should the international community do? Uh, so if we could sort of Start with that, and then we will. Uh, I will open it up uh, to the uh, to the rest of the uh, for the rest of the questions. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you <clears throat> mentioned um, or implicitly mentioned the bombing of uh, of railway lines to Auschwitz because that's the most famous example, which um, uh, Ma late Martin Gilbert wrote a book uh, um, about this. The funny thing is that. Um, I recorded late last night on uh, on uh, the television. There was a program uh, uh, devoted exactly to this. To why didn't the Allies bomb Auschwitz? It was recorded during the night, so I, I haven't actually seen this yet. But of course, the Allies were within striking distance. They could have um, bombed the railway lines. Uh, the Red Army, the Red Air Force, was also within striking distance. The plan which was submitted to uh, Churchill was shelved. They didn't, they, they, the bureaucrats in the uh, British Foreign Office effectively uh, sidelined the plan to, to build it. The, the formal, the formal um, attitude of the British at that time was, we have to win the war and everything will be okay. So there was no, there was no military attack on the railway lines that uh, attacked that um, uh, would have destroyed the the um, transportation of Jews, even at very late stage in the war in 1944 to to Auschwitz. Uh, and you 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 have this uh, situation, the idea that Jew that that everything would be okay, the Jews would be saved because of the, the Allied victory. The problem was 
that there were very few Jews to save at the end of the day. When British soldiers entered some of the camps in 1945, they found piles and piles of corpses of people that looked like skeletons, of, of Jews, Roma, all sorts of people. And this was what was shown or, uh, in, in the cinema that I mentioned. You see, you see British Tommies with the kerchiefs, with handkerchiefs over their noses and, and, and mouths, like we wear masks today. But the particular Tommy in question was a, 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 a tractor driver. They would scoop up the bodies in the, the mouth of the, the, the tractor and push them into a mass grave. That is what shocked the people in the center of London when they went to see these films. Now today, let me give you a concrete example. Charlottesville, 2017, whereby racists confronted anti-racists, where a poor woman was run down and was killed. There was also a torch-lit march by young men. They were chanting, Jews will not replace us. This is 2017. Jews will not replace us. And it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or not Jewish. That's a shocking thing to, to hear after what had happened. And to, to, to hear it from people that were born a long time after the end of the war. People who lived and loved and prospered in the 21st century. And of course, there was former President Trump's uh, equivalence that both sides were equal. And more to the point, Joe Biden has said, this is what effectively brought him out of retirement to stand as the presidential candidate for the, for the Democrats. I mean, the man was 78. Did he need this? Did he need to become president? But for him, that was like the blue touch paper. That was what ignited his indignation. He felt that he had to make a stand against these pernicious forces in the United States. That's why we have a, a President Biden today. Can't hear you. Thank you. Sorry, thank you. Thank you, Professor Shantra. Sorry, I was, I was muted. <laughs> One of these problems of uh, missing. Uh, may I call upon uh, Dr. Kajijian to, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mispronouncing your name, but uh, if you have a question or a comment to make, uh, my apologies for. Thank, thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Raja Gobalan. I appreciate it. Uh, let me say first, uh, Professor Schindler, this is a fascinating talk that you delivered. I very much appreciate it. I am a student of, uh, of uh, Lemkin who uh, coined the term genocide. Uh, and I sympathize, uh, of course, offer my condolences. I'm also the grandson of a genocide loss. My grandmother was murdered by the Turks. Uh, you know this better than I. Uh, the, the, the best books that have been written on the subject, probably by Robert Melson, Revolution and Genocide, who compared 
the Holocaust with the Armenian genocide. And of course, there are other folks who have written tremendous uh, uh, books. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Aron, The Modality of Indifference, and a whole bunch of other books. A couple of weeks ago, we had, as part of the series, uh, Professor Navon from Israel, who gave a fascinating talk on diplomatic history of Israel. And I asked him this question as well, which I'm going to ask you. Uh, both of us, you and me and our peoples, uh, have first-hand knowledge of what it means to be persecuted. Yet, I don't hear anything from my Jewish friends to say anything about what's going on in Azerbaijan when Azerbaijan murders in 2020. You mentioned Charlottesville. Uh, I am a U University of Virginia graduate. I know Charlottesville very well. I lived there for 10 years. I know what kind of racists live in that city. But your people and my people need to speak with one voice when it comes to the Azeris and what they're doing to the Armenians. My question to you is the following. What has prevented, uh, all, for all these years, men of goodwill like you and others to speak up about what the Turks and the Azerbaijanis have done to the Armenians? Yes, thank you. Um, I reviewed uh, a book by my friend Benny Morris, one of Israel's leading historians, with another Israeli. He wrote The 30-Year War about the genocide conducted against the Armenians. I reviewed that in one of the main Jewish uh, newspapers here in, in, um, in, in Britain. And uh, what, what amazed me there, I, I thought that the, the killings had just taken place in World War I mainly, and then afterwards with the Greek-Turkish uh, War. But what I understood was that this had started much earlier in the 1890s and even before and stretched over 30 years. And uh, as I say, these were two Israelis who wrote this book. It's a huge book, five or 600 pages. I've read it. I also, I also reviewed, I think last year in the Times Literary Supplement, um, there was a book by an American, um, an American writer who castigated the the, the, the Jewish community in Turkey for eff effectively going along with the official explanation of the Armenian tragedy. Uh, and that's a very, very good book. So I, I, I wrote about that in a TLS. And um, one thing I remember from that is that I think at the end of 2019, and uh, th this, the, the, the United States Congress and indeed the Jewish community in the United States began to uh, reverse their, their, their doctrine of silence. I think basically the, the reason for this, as you probably know, is that uh, the national interests of Israel or the political interests of Israel was basically keeping uh, sweet with both Azerbaijan and indeed Turkey. And to some extent, that's why things change. But let me say this, there are many people, many Jews who identify with the state of Israel, who do not identify with the government of Israel. And there are Jews who do speak out 
on the Armenian question. The, the, I think you're, 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 you are right in, in, in uh, saying that because of the past history, the Armenian um, tragedy should be brought further to the uh, forefront. And I hope that this will take place in, in the future. Thank you, Professor Schindler. Uh, I have a question from one of my colleagues uh, in the School of International Studies, uh, Professor Rajna Negi. Uh, she says, uh, she writes, thank you uh, for the much needed revisit. Um, what explains the phenomena of negligible resistance within Germany to such a flagrant assault on humanity? And how do you assess the way in which Germany currently deals with this through memorialization, resettlement, etc.? I, I think that there, there was resistance. People have written books on this. In fact, uh, my, my own home library here uh, contains such books. Um, many communists, many social democrats were imprisoned or forced into exile. Um, and there was, of course, the White Rose Movement, uh, actually during World War II, where young people, young students, um, in fact, uh, printed leaflets against against Hitler. This, we're talking about 1942-1943. And the White Rose young people, the, the, the majority of them were arrested uh, and indeed guillotined by the Nazis. This was their fate. So there was resistance. Um, the the memorialization of, uh, of Germany, it, let me give you, it's my own personal feeling. I, for many years, did not go to what was then West Germany. Um, it wasn't, it, you know, it, it wasn't a sort of a, um, an overt boycott, but I thought, do I need to spend a long weekend, uh, a holiday in, in Germany? And that was my, my attitude. And about 10, 12 years ago, I went I went for several days with my wife to Germany and I found the Germans were making a valiant attempt uh, in terms of memorialization to overcome their past. So, uh, so we went to the uh, Jewish Museum, for example. We went, to, we went to where Hitler's bunker had been. It's uh, very... Um, it's, 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 there's a deliberate diminution of its significance. And I made a point of going to uh, the Museum of Resistance of uh, von Stauffenberg, who um, was, was uh, killed in the, almost the last days of the war by, by Hitler. So for me personally, I felt that was really something uh, special. I mean, I, I, I've had many, many German students um, during my career, and I, I don't, I don't think of them as Germans. I don't think of them in 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 that sense. I think of them as students, and yet there was this sort of uh, double approach uh, for myself. How do you deal? How do you deal with it? And I, I, I don't have those feelings that I used to have about Germany. I see it as a European country. I see it as a country that is a, a liberal country. 
And in fact, Angela Merkel has been remarkable in, in, in Europe for standing up for moral values, you know, that, uh, and, 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 and calling out uh, when terrible things have happened. I mean, the irony is that people look to Germany, not simply in economic terms, but for a moral stand. And I think that's, I think that's an amazing turnabout. And it's an amazing evolution. Perhaps that's the best memorialization that can actually take place. Uh, it, I, if I could sort of continue on that line, because that's obviously an important question, which has some relevance to uh, what happens today, uh, you know, because again, because we see these things reoccurring. Um, so I mean, there's a whole uh, Daniel Goldhagen sort of, it's been a couple of decades now, but uh, that whole argument about the complicity of ordinary Germans. I was wondering what your uh, take on that was, because of course that's been very controversial and I've had a lot of pushback on that. Uh, but I just wondered what your own sense of that was. I, I, I think maybe it's, it's almost a fatalistic approach, but it's part of the human nature to go uh, to, 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 to flow in the, uh, to, to blow in the wind, to go with the tide. Um, 11 million people voted for Hitler. Um, and people, you know, uh, we have this in all countries of the world. People close their eyes. People prefer to be a bystander. People don't get, don't wish to become involved. Let me give you the example of the United States. It's a current example. I don't believe that Trump is Hitler. I don't believe that his followers were Nazis. There were probably good reasons for him to be elected in 2016. But people knew what he stood for, what he was like in 2020. And yet 74 million people voted for him. You know, in 1933, the, the Catholic, one of the Catholic parties voted in March 1933 for the Enabling Act. This effectively gave Hitler uh, dictatorial powers. They went along with it. They went along with it. They thought that they could control Hitler. So I suppose, I suppose, you know, the lesson out of all of this is that regardless of what caused you a spouse, you cannot be a bystander. You cannot you cannot stand aside. You have to take a moral stand in all these questions, including as uh, one of the previous speakers suggested, the question of the Armenian genocide. You cannot remain silent. And I think that is one of the fundamental uh, lessons of the Holocaust. Thank you, sir. Let me read some of the other questions uh, from the uh, chat box. Uh, from uh, Minachi, uh, uh, thank you for your lecture. There have been several debates on the role of the Catholic Church for fanning the spread of anti-Semitism in Europe. If you could share some comments on how far you hold the Catholic institution responsible. If it was not a pious 12, would 
uh, would there have been a different scenario? Um, it's, it's a very good question. Undoubtedly, the Catholic Church um, propagated anti-Judaism in a theological sense for centuries. Um, if you go back to medieval times, expulsion from Spain, um, auto da fez, Jews being burnt at the stake, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in the 20th century, they feared that uh, that Jews and, uh, and and Bolsheviks were one and the same. They were deadly frightened. Catholic Church was deathly frightened of the uh, advance of communism, and many Catholic bishops uh, openly espoused. Um, Judeo-Bolshevism. Uh, for example, during the Spanish Civil War, there was something like 50, over 50 Spanish bishops, something like 47 of them uh, supported Franco. So they supported anti-communist forces, which they identified as being primarily Jewish. Pope Pius XI uh, began to become more courageous, I would say, in his last days about what was happening in Germany and intended to speak out. He died before he could. The successor, Pius XII, I think had been the Archbishop in Munich in 1919. He'd witnessed um, some of the uh, post-World War I uh, uprisings, often led or on, uh, often led by Jews, but Jews were, were, were dominant in these uh, uh, movements, and he, he, he did not favor Jews. The question of whether he could have done more is an open question. And I believe that uh, a lot of the archives are now being opened uh, to do so. But let me say this in, uh, in, in, in contrast, after, after World War II, uh, I think the Catholic Church began to reappraise its situation. In 1960, um, Cardinal Ron Kelly uh, became Pope John XXIII. And he had been the papal nuncio in Istanbul, in Turkey. And he issued of his own volition these protective passports. I mentioned the Swedes with Warnberg, who, who, who issued these protective passports. The Vatican, through Roncalli, through Pope John XXIII, when he was there, did the same. So, you know, things, things have changed, particularly since the time of, of uh, John XXIII. Uh, but if you look back in history, I don't think that the Catholic attitude towards Jews was a particularly positive one. Um, I have a question uh, from Shashwat. Uh, was the rest of Europe able to escape <coughs> Germany and did not really have to deal with their uh, own involvement in the Holocaust, including the persecution of Jews uh, in the Soviet Union and in Poland, as Tony Jot had uh, writes about in his book, Post-War? But the uh, sorry, I didn't quite understand it. That the the Poland and the Soviet Union didn't really they're, come to terms with their own history of uh, persecution of Jews. I mean, have they dealt with it? 
adequately uh, you know because all the blame sort of fell on germany and uh, the rest of europe uh, sure um, the various programs they never had to really deal with that or or you know that part of it uh, sure the, in a sense, most Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I understand the question. Most of the uh, six million were killed in Poland or in what was then the Soviet Union, the Baltic states, in in, in Belarus, the Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> and of course, there was this twin oppression <clears throat> that um, Jews were being discriminated against in uh, Soviet the Soviet Union. Um, they weren't allowed in many instances, to commemorate their dead. You found, you found that many Soviet monuments to the dead of World War II, uh, the, name, the, the, the fact that the majority of, in certain areas, the people that had been killed were Jews, they suddenly became amorphous Soviet citizens. So <clears throat> there was no direct commemoration. Um, <clears throat> as... After Stalin's death, <clears throat> and particularly after the doctor's plot of January 1953, in which um, the Kremlin accused, uh, arrested many doctors, they accused them of poisoning the leaders of the Kremlin, many, the vast majority of them were Jews. And it was believed that this was the precursor to uh, either exiling the vast majority of Jews to some remote place in the Soviet Union, but certainly taking some action against them. Now, fortunately, Stalin dropped dead in March 1953. And after that, there was a thaw. It was, it was actually called the thaw, the time of Khrushchev and Bulganin uh, and, and these people. But Jews were still not recognized. They were still discriminated against. Uh, in, in fact, I've just uh, reviewed a book just a, a couple of days ago about um, uh, a, a journalist, a Jewish journalist, who uh, wrote for a satirical magazine called Crocodile. Jews had to change their names. They had an, a Jewish-sounding surname. They had to, in public, adopt a, a, a Russian surname. So, so there was this implicit uh, discrimination. And this is what led, after 1967, to uh, a mass exodus of Jews from Russia to Israel, to America, to other places. So yes, there was this double discrimination. Now, whereas the, the Soviet Union had the gulag and many Jews, particularly during the war, were imprisoned there, many Polish Jews, the Soviet Union did not have extermination camps. It did not have Uh, um, concentration camps in the sense that there were uh, gas chambers. So it was different. The Soviet Union did indeed oppress its Jewish population, uh, <clears throat> but it was not on the same genocidal level uh, as, as the Nazis. Many Jews died because of Soviet incompetence, because of Soviet discrimination, but it was not the same thing as the, the Nazi experience. Thank you. Um, Professor Kumarasamy, do you have a question or is there another Kumarasamy there? No, no, no. It's, it's, uh, <clears throat> and um, uh, I, I have. Uh, Professor Schindler, I have a, a, a question. If you look at the 
the discussions on, on the Holocaust. Normally countries and people and communities are classified into four broad types. Perpetrator, victim, collaborator, and bystanders. Also rescuers and bystanders. If you look at it, India does not fit into any of these categories. We are almost, you would say, an indifferent towards them. And therefore, in a society like India, how do you at least highlight the importance of Holocaust in, in understanding the human civilization progress as well as the flip side? How do you promote the understanding of Holocaust in a society like India? Well, I, I think for, I think for Jews, all Jews are survivors. You know, um, I, again, if I, I seem to be talking a lot about myself here, but in, in this context, maybe it's relevant. My mother used to tell me that if it hadn't been for the 20 miles of clear blue water between England and, and France, that, uh, my own family, which has been in England for hundreds of years, would have met the same fate as Jews in mainland Europe. So I think for Jews, it's very, it's very personal. It's, it's, it's something important. Um, I think for, for, for the British, for, for, for non-Jews in Britain, it's also very symbolic. It's interesting, about 15 years ago, I think the BBC uh, had a competition. Who was the greatest Briton of all time? You know, some, some television uh, <laughs> competition. And who won overwhelmingly was Winston Churchill. Now, this is, this is 40, 50 years after Churchill had died. And yet, the, the memory of World War II is carried down through to their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, down the generations. For India, it's more complex because I know that Gandhi was reticent about supporting the war, even though he hated Hitler and he hated anti-Semitism, he hated racism. I think for, for anti um, anti-imperialist and anti-colonial movements, it's a slightly different situation that they, uh, that India or Ireland or, um, or even Egypt, there were nationalists who were fighting for independence against, against uh, Britain. So it's a slightly different thing. I think the main, I think the main task in today's world, and this may indeed apply to India, is that the Holocaust was the event which shows what can happen if you don't take a stand against certain evil practices. If you don't, if you act the bystander, if you're only interested in your own individual concerns, if you don't care about other people. In one sense, the Jews are the canary in the mine. 
when the canary begins to sing, when the canary smells the gas in the, in the coal mine, then you know that something is wrong. So that I think is the, you know, I, I don't pretend to pronounce on, on, uh, on the lessons of the Holocaust for individual Indians. But I think in a universal sense, it's important that people should see what could happen if you, if you, if you bury your uh, head in the sand like an ostrich. If you don't take a stand, if you merely allow things to pass by, and like the, like the, the German Catholics in 1933, you get caught up with it. You become, you become a collaborator in, in, a, in a silent way, in an indirect way. And I think that that's, that's my personal opinion. Uh, Professor Ramakrishnan, uh, would you like to ask a question or make a comment? Yes. Um, Thank you, uh, Rajesh Rajagopal. Um, uh, thank you, Professor Schindler, for um, such a significant lecture and uh, reminding us uh, of the uh, dangers of uh, um, the kind of uh, ideologies that uh, basically uh, you know, murdered so many people. And as a as a non-Jew, uh, you know, I could not stop crying when I went to Auschwitz and Birkenau. Um, uh, you know, one has to have that uh, that feeling of humanity and remember Auschwitz uh, um, for for making humanity feel. Um, in the present day context and in future, um, what kind of uh, politics and societies we should have. And in that sense, um, you know, from your explanations of what was happening in Europe, um, the way Germany acted, the the main question is what are the combination of factors that created this situation for the Jews? Um, you have mentioned various actors involved in it, but this anti-Semitism itself, the ideological content of it, the, um, you know, the economic situation, the, the <clears throat> notion of uh, kind of new, uh, extreme nationalist sentiment that is politically being created. The, you know, the, the phenomenon, which is very common now that, uh, uh, you know, we elect our dictators through proper elections, you see, <laughs> and so uh, these kinds of phenomena together contributing to a situation where humanity is at risk and, and, and the Jewish people experience that in a big manner. So in order that we can think about our contemporary situations and move towards the future, what are these combinations of factors in Europe at that time that we should uh, 
you know, understand today. Um, that's one aspect of it. The, the, there's another question altogether. That's about, you know, we cannot overlook the fact that non-Jewish people, Roma, you have uh, just mentioned in passing, Muslims, many others, uh, um, you know, black people, many others were Roma in particular, um, were uh, affected by Nazi policies um, in a big manner. Many of them were killed as well. So, uh, you know, some take on that uh, would illuminate us more. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I think just on the last point, I think that, um, sure, the Jewish question, the extermination of the Jews, has indeed overshadowed the killing of the Roma, uh, the killing of uh, homosexuals, um, the killing of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, you know, perhaps it's because, because behind that, there were hundreds of years of persecution of the Jews. You know, the, the, the cliche is that uh, after 1945, uh, Jews said never again. So I, I, I do believe that there's, there's this, how do I put it, very emotional, vociferous, uh, and powerful reaction from individual Jews. So uh, when they see anti-Semitism, they, they effectively blow up, you know, and <laughs> never, never again is more than a slogan. It has meaning. So that, that may be the reason why peop less people know about the persecution of the Roma, for example. Now... On the major part of your question, um, I think in the, the 18th century, going back to the French Revolution, Jews began to see themselves as a people, that the Jews were more than, if you like, the people of the Bible, that the Jews had a, had a, a, a culture, a literature, a history, languages, they were more than, than a religion per se, although religion was part of their national characteristics. And therefore you have in the 19th century, with the rise of uh, particularly European nationalism, you have the rise of Jewish nationalism. And given the development of uh, of nation states in the 19th century. The Jews who didn't fit in, they didn't fit into theory. They didn't have their own state. They didn't have their own economy, etc. They were part of host societies who tried to contribute. But quite often, European nationalism said, we don't want these people. They are, they are outsiders, even though they may have been part of the uh, society for hundreds of years. And of course, when Jews were allowed to um, go to university, for example, when Jews were allowed to enter the professions, 
there was a sense of jealousy, a sense of rivalry. <laughs> let me give you let me give you an example. Um, Karl Marx. Um, there's a very good book by Shlomo Avineri, by the way. It uh, came yeah. out uh, <laughs> uh, a year ago. I, again, I reviewed that. It's, it's very interesting. Um, the Marx during during the Napoleonic Wars, the French occupied part of Germany, part of Prussia, and Jews had equal opportunity. When Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo and the Prussians took over once again, they reintroduced discriminatory laws against the Jews. So for example, uh, Marx and his, his, uh, his father, they were, the, the Marx wasn't allowed to, to become a lawyer, I believe. The only way he could uh, enter the profession was to become a Lutheran. You have all of these anomalies, and that is, in, is, is essentially is symbolic about the, the European nations. In addition, you have the Catholic Church. Um, one of the popes, well, one, one of the, there's a story about, uh, about a Jewish child being baptized. Um, by one of the maids that worked for them. And when the Catholic Church heard about this, they took the child away from the parents. This, we're talking about the, the middle of the 19th century. and was brought up as a ward of the, of the Pope because the person had become a Catholic. Well, you have the Dreyfus affair. You know, so even if Jews wanted to assimilate, wanted to convert, up until then he was quite assimilated and with the election of Karl Luger who was known to be vehemently uh, against the Jews Herzl began to look into himself and he came up with the Zionist solution that's why you you have the the Jewish state was written by Herzl in it was 1895 1896 so you 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 have this background of the Jews uh, in the 19th century seen as some powerful force in which European nationalists begin to discriminate against them, begin to... And in the 20th century, with the defeat of World War I, even though you had something like, I think, 12,000... Um, a huge number, I can't remember the exact number, huge numbers of... Jews fought for the Kaiser. Huge numbers of Jews were decorated. And yet, the Jews were held responsible for Germany's defeat. None of it made any sense. But, you know, if, if you can convince people, uh, for example, you convince people in the United States the vote was stolen, right? So what I'm trying to say is, as much as I don't want to say it, is that people are easily swayed, easily sucked in uh, by, by demagoguery. They're easily sucked in by people that pronounce great ideas without any factual basis. And, you know, in the United States, 
uh, in the election, over 75% of Jews voted against Trump, even though he was very positive to Israel, even though he fell, you know, Israelis fell over themselves for, for, for Trump. The, it was only the, the, the Jews voted against Trump because they understood the lessons of Jewish history. They were liberals in a universalist sense. The, the, I mean, and the interesting thing is the, the Jews, you know, to be perfect, a very affluent community in the United States. And yet they still voted for the Democrats. Their socioeconomic uh, affiliation should have been with the Republicans. They refused to do it. And their vote, uh, their overwhelming vote, <coughs> was only exceeded by American blacks who don't have the same uh, e economic status as Jews. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, let me read a couple of, uh, or just go over a couple of questions from the chat box. Uh, Marudan uh, refers to the question of uh, how persecuted Jews, after they found out their state, uh, in turn became uh, persecutors of uh, persecutors of Palestinians. I mean, so that question about uh, the Palestinian rights and so on and so forth. Uh, another question, uh, if I could add on, um, uh, is about, uh, you know, from Rohit Sharma, asks about, um, you know, in England, uh, anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, uh, Mr. Corbyn, uh, and accusations of anti-Semitism uh, towards him, and how you sort of uh, look at that. If you could just address those two questions, and then we can sort of... Yeah. The, the Israeli uh, conquest of the uh, West Bank and Gaza in 1967 um, has proved to be a poison chalice for Israel. Um, the problem of the Israel-Palestine conflict is, is that there were two rival claims uh, over the same piece of land, both Jewish nationalism and Arab nationalism arose at the same point in history with claims over the same piece of land. So it's a national conflict and the logic is partition, Palestinian state and Israeli state. To me, you know, you could, you can go into all the, the details, the minutiae, but that's the, that's the problem. Um, there are many organizations in Israel that oppose the, um, the Israeli presence in the territories. There are many uh, Israeli organizations that oppose the settlement drive. For example, I can tell you in, uh, in Britain, there have been several scientific surveys, one by the Institute of Jewish Affairs, another one by City University, and it, uh, it looked at, at uh, the attitudes of British Jews towards the settlement drive. And in each case, 75% of British Jews opposed the settlement drive. So the point is that Israel and the Jewish world is not a homogeneous entity. There are people who very much oppose the, the policies of the Netanyahu government. 
identification with the state is not the same as identification the, the, the government. And um, one of the problems with the far left is that they talk about genocide of the Palestinians, etc. They try and turn the Israelis into Nazis. That's not the case. If, uh, if, the, if the Israelis uh, were Nazis, where are the crematoria? You know, so opposition to some things that are going on in Israel is widespread in the diaspora and also within Israel. Um, in, for example, in the, uh, the there's, a, there's an election coming up uh, very shortly. And in this election, the, the, I think the latest poll suggests that uh, Netanyahu's Likud will get 30 seats. Now that's 30 seats out of 120. So the Likud will get 25% of the votes and 75% of the Israelis will, vote, will not vote for the Likud, will not vote for Netanyahu. So you have this, you have this um, strange situation. So let, that's one question. Let me come to the question of the, of the Corbynistas, the far left. You could argue that Jeremy Corbyn is not an anti-Semite, certainly. On the other hand, he sat on panels whereby different speakers have indeed uttered anti-Semitic comments. And he sat there quietly, hasn't said a word. He has allowed uh, instances of anti-Zionism, which is a valid uh, stand, to tip over into anti-Semitism. That's the problem. And with the advent of the electronic media, he hasn't taken a stand. Corbyn believes passionately in the Palestinian cause. I have no personal objection to that, but he's never acted as a mediator between Israelis and Palestinians. He's never said, I'll act between the peace camps of both sides. He has this attitude uh, of turning a blind eye to certain terrible things that may take place in the developing world because he, he's an anti-imperialist, he's an anti-colonialist. So for example, in the 1980s, when uh, Iran was executing many Iranian socialists, he didn't say a word. Instead, he went on Iranian television, press, press uh, TV, and spoke many, many times. Like, you can't have these double standards if you're a socialist. And th this, is, this, I think, is the, the main uh, criticism of Corbyn, that uh, he is actually not living up to the high moral standards that socialism uh, dictates. Thank you, Professor. Uh, Mudasa? Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you, Professor Schindler, for that very thought-provoking and you know, enlightening lecture and reminding us of the, you know, uh, uh, the, the horrible you know, Holocaust which took place. Uh, I have a question regarding the idea of uh, Holocaust education. Uh, 
since I've been associated with some of these events uh, <coughs> education in the past. Uh, two points. One is, uh, how do you think that, you know, the Holocaust education can be made more universal? Uh, do you think the, the point about uh, incorporating Holocaust education in the larger, you know, idea of genocide education would be more useful in terms of, you know, spreading uh, the, the idea of Holocaust education and not just, you know, with, within the specific, I mean, obviously the, the significance can never be, and you have highlighted that point uh, in your reaction earlier, but to make it more, uh, you know, universal in terms of, you know, idea of genocide education, your thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that's an important question. Um, I, I, I believe that um, Holocaust education should not remain within um, a particular sphere. There are universal questions that pertain to this. But I think the, the core of, if you like, even genocidal education must be the Holocaust. It's highly symbolic. It's highly symbolic. So I would, I, I would argue that that has to be at the core. It has to be the almost the central understanding. It, not, not because it's the Jews, but because it's high, highly symbolic in the, in the universalist sense. And that local examples where genocide has taken place should be you know if you like attached to that that it, that out of understanding the symbolic um the, the symbolism of the of the holocaust you can relate to other terrible things like the armenian uh killings during world war one so i i'm not one of those who, who who says only the jews but i do think that the jew the jewish uh example is the central example, the most symbolic example, and then you you relate it to other questions. Thank you, uh, Professor Schindler. Uh, I think it has been a fascinating uh, talk. Um, uh, we are, uh, of course, very grateful to you for uh, joining us this morning so early and taking the time off at, uh, at this ungodly hour uh, for from your uh, for, you know a near part of the world. Um, this is, I think, you know, we, the, the one is the, one of the uh, difficult things to come to grips with is that 20 years back uh, during the Yugoslavian civil war, Europeans across the continent were saying, you know, how can this happen again in, uh, in Europe um, when you had a similar <coughs> kind of discrimination and, uh, and uh, massacres and uh, violence, um, you know, in, in, the, in the Balkans. Um, today, uh, 20, 30 years later, it seems as if that particular trend has spread and you see even, even more worrying developments, as I said in the beginning, uh, across the world. I mean, it's some, you know, it's, it's uh, I, and I, and, and I know a lot of people try to sort of see, see this as part of a common process, but even though the common elements in that are difficult to 
difficult to find, except that there is rising nationalism, there is rising, um, maybe it's the consequence of identity politics or, or whatever else, but there is a rising age, uh, you know, it, it, it is, uh, I think, um, these are things that we, that uh, horrible as they were, uh, one thought was left in the history books, but obviously um, it is, uh, but the history books, I suppose, can still, and the history of it can still teach us uh, <clears throat> the dangers uh, of where we are going um, in many parts of the world. And so I think uh, we need to continue doing this, continue to sort of learn the lessons of what happened, continue to revisit that, uh, however terrible those were, those days were. Um, and so, again, we are extremely grateful to you for uh, your talk um, and um, thank uh, all the participants for their questions and comments. And let me pass this back on to my colleague, Professor Kumar Swami, for his final comments and thoughts. Professor Kumar Swami. Thank you. 